So uh, I got a call from John Weiss at about 9.10 to 9.15 this morning, uh, which was the reason, Andy, I apologize that I was late for your class, because I had to still shave, shower, and get uh, a message together, which normally takes me about eight hours, but uh, I uh, just decided to recycle some old materials. So we're going to have uh, Josiah for a title today. I, uh, I'm going to actually need, Jason, I'm going to need to go back through some of the announcements and comment on about three of them a little bit more. Does somebody have an ability to do that? Um, the main uh, outline that you got in your, that, uh, that I'm going to be talking from today is called Five Approaches to Bible Study. However... Really what I want to talk about is remembering our commission. Okay, um, every group, no matter if it's a family, uh, a business, a baseball team, uh, a church, has to have a clear understanding of what we're trying to accomplish. Okay? And so, in a nutshell, what has God called Grace Christian Fellowship to do? Um, one of the things that I'm constantly wrestling with, in fact, uh, last night we had a family dinner and, uh, with uh, Jason and Carla, uh, John and Emily and Susan. Aunt Susan was uh, in bad spirits and uh, was crying and upset and different things. She hasn't been feeling well, and, and she actually woke John and Emily up about every 30 minutes all night last night. And then uh, John, John has, uh, you know, I taught him as a boy how to, how to st still work even if he didn't get a chance to go to bed that night. That one, I think that's an important thing to develop. There are times where you're going to have to function at 100% with or without sleep, and uh, you shouldn't probably make it as much of a lifestyle as as uh, John and I tend to do, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, you should be able to do it, and uh, you should be able to not lose a beat, and uh, there are times when uh, you might not get proper rest, but you still have responsibilities to take care of, so uh, unfortunately, though, John started losing his voice early this morning, and, and uh, by, by nine o'clock, it was uh, very little uh, voice left, and he wouldn't have been able to lead the worship or sing. Thank you, Sam Chen, Boom for the wonderful job you did leading the worship today. Great. Isn't it great to worship together? So what are we trying to do here at Grace Christian Fellowship? I'm actually going to go back through a whole bunch of different topics to uh, kind of remind us of who we are and where we're going. Um, you know, last night, one of the questions that was presented to me, uh, we had, of course, Rick Widener was with us last night in and Ray Nethery, they often come to our family dinners. And uh, so, and they've been there for many a family, uh, both good times and bad times, crisis, and what, you know, uh, they, they come when we uh, need them sometimes. And uh, it, was, it was a great evening. We all went, to, well, Ray and Rick came just to the dinner, but the rest of us went to see the play of The Sound of Music at the Schuster Center. And that was just awesome. And then we, uh, you know, we had this dinner, eating cheese and crackers and all. And the question came up around the dinner table. When I talk about the current state of evangelical Christianity, 99% of the people who hear me say that 
think I'm being ridiculously overstated. I remember when uh, we asked Edwin and Beth to start reaching out to Cedarville University, about two months after they did that, they came to me and they said, we have sat there in for years in our hearts judging you that you're, that you're saying this stuff way too radical and way overstated and that it's not that bad out there. And one of the questions last night, is it really as bad in evangelical Christianity is what I make out to say. I would say if you were to study historical Christianity from a deep understanding of the whole scripture, you would have to conclude that we're in, the, the church is in deep trouble in America. It is more off base than before Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the Wittenberg Chapel doors. We need something bigger than the Reformation. And um, one of the things that we're up against is there's a kind of a Greco-Roman Western humanistic theorizing approach to to, to the scriptures so that people uh, get left in a position where we're, we're using some of the same terminology but what we're trying to do is put some content and reality back into it. And so, um, usually the first two or three years we're working with someone who has come out of a Bible-believing church, they're like, yeah, I'm, this is what I've always heard. This is what I'm used to and so forth. And it takes a long time before they begin to see the difference. We, uh, part of our discussions last night was how proud we are of John Gray, who I guess is downstairs now. He's never around when I'm saying this kind of stuff. Uh, he's, down, he's down taking, uh, taking charge of kids and so forth. Or what, and, uh, uh, but, you know, John Gray had a bachelor's degree in Bible study from Alaska Bible College. He had a degree from Cedarville University in Bible study. And he knew almost nothing about the Bible. Um, and it took about three years before John was willing to actually start to study the Bible. And what's amazing today is his command of the scriptures. You've gotten to hear him teach recently. He's, he's quite good. Uh, but, you know, there's this uh, disconnect. Uh, I was talking with uh, Jim and Caleb before... Uh, church. Uh, if you don't know them, they're uh, Beth's uncle and her cousin, and uh, wonderful Christian people. I, I actually like to hear, uh, read Kayla's blog and hear him speak and so forth. And um, they brought up the, the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism, which is uh, a phrase coined by a, a pastor named Michael Horton, who writes good books and is from more of the reform perspective. And uh, it's the, the idea is kind of spreading, but but we've really uh, gone to a place where moralize, what we mean by moralizing is that the Christian message is you ought to do this about your marriage, and you ought to do this about raising your kids, and you ought to do this with your finances, and you ought to be... And it's all kind of like the moralizing of how... And we bring up our kids moralizing. Be a good little boy or girl. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that is not what it means to be a Christian. 
hopefully there's some fruit of righteous character as a result of the gospel, but that is not a gospel message. First of all, you know, as, as we go through the eight essential elements of the gospel, the first one is God. All fallen men, and unfortunately much of the church today, has a very wrong picture of God in their mind and their heart. And that's especially rampant among Bible-believing Christians. We see God as kind of a cosmic uh, do-what-we-want person. He's our butler. You know, like we're singing the Psalms, he's our butler. He's our butler, our mighty butler. And, uh, you know, he's come just to forgive us of our sins. And uh, forgiveness is cheap, easy, without much recognition of the depth of what sin really is. But sin is a deep violation of the most important sacred relationship in the universe. And our God is much bigger, much more holy, much more a God of both judgment and mercy than we have pictured today. Uh, this is why we, you know, Andy and Peggy and their Wednesday night home group that meets twice a month, second and fourth Wednesdays of the month, are going through a book called uh, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozier, which is a very nice, good, wonderful, frankly, introductory book on the attributes of God. But you need to restudy from a, if you've grown up in today's church, your view of God has been severely damaged. Every one of us. And in fact, it's part of our fallen nature to have a very warped view of God in our mind and heart. Part of salvation is to grow in the true knowledge of God all the time. And that has to come from hours and hours and hours of studying His Word. You know, secondly is the the doctrine of man. Uh, We are living in... not probably, definitely, the most shallow, narcissistic culture in the history of mankind. When Christopher Lash wrote his classic book called The Culture of Narcissism in the mid-70s, he couldn't have possibly dreamed of how narcissistic it is now. In fact, there's been several follow-up books that have come out in the last 10 years by psychologists saying, you know, it's 10 times worse than what Christopher Lash was talking about. We are about me, myself, and I. And that comes to us quite easily because it's deep within our sin nature. And if there's anything that's rampant in the church today, it's an underestimation of the depth of our depravity and of what it really means. It really means mostly that we're running from God. Even Christians uh, who can't shake God off their tail completely mostly go to church and do their little bit of the little bit of dabbling in the bible and whatever else they do to try to kind of quiet their conscience because they can't get god out of their life altogether and so that you what most people are really going to church to avoid god and we know we're not going to get too much of depth uh, and intensity of god at, at church <laughs> you know that's a good place to avoid him and uh, that's just that's the reality of where we're at right now. The fastest growing genre of books, 
you know, if you go to Amazon, look at Christian books, is the crisis in evangelical Christianity. It's falling apart. There, you know, all sorts of false views of God, Gnosticism, uh, Pietism, Neoplatonism, you name it, it's, it's very, very off base out there. Over 9 out of 10 people that come in our doors that are Christian already are really more pre-evangelized than actually evangelized to the gospel of grace and the gospel of the kingdom of God. You have to have a great big view of God and a great view, big view of my sin. Well, most of you have a good big view of my sin. But you need a good view of your sin. <laughs> uh, most of you can list my sins pretty well. But, uh, but can you list your own? And do you really get past the moralizing, uh, what comes out of, the, of a problem that's in the church today called antinomianism, when you throw out God's law, well, you are made in the image of God. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then, then you're a prime candidate to see why you need this stuff. If you don't know what I mean by antinomianism, you need to know. Because most people bury their heads in the sand and goes, well, I don't like theology in big words. I, just the Bible for me. If you don't know what these ideas are, then you're probably living them. Not probably. That's understated. You are living antinomian Christianity if you don't know what that means. If you don't know what I mean by pietism, then you're living pietism. If you don't know what I mean uh, by uh, dispensationalism, then you're probably a dispensationalist and you don't know it. And if you don't know this, most dispensationalists aren't dispensationalists anymore because it wasn't really a very biblical system and it didn't work. And, and now mostly we have modified dispensationalism for those who are trying to hang on to that paradigm. But whether you know it or not, you've been taught paradigms, and that's not two 10-cent pieces. Uh, you've been taught a... It's an old joke. Yeah, symbol. <laughs> You've been taught an approach to interpreting the scriptures that is totally affecting you when you read the scriptures so that even if you read your Bible for hours, you're not getting the right message out of it. Because you haven't really thought through how do you interpret this Bible. And no one's helped you learn that. We have probably over 200 podcasts on our website on how to read the Bible for more understanding. Uh, we were supposed to do a handout. Oh, good. So, if you take this handout called the Bible on the importance of Bible study, or I'm sorry, the Bible, the importance of reading the, uh, the Old Testament according to the New Testament. We also have a different handout it's called the, the Bible on the importance of Bible study, which we're going to be handing out next week. I didn't realize we didn't have those pre-printed. These are just the most didactic, hopefully by now you know what I mean when I say a didactic scripture. A didactic scripture is when scripture just states it plainly uh, as a matter of, uh, in, an, in an imperative kind of way, in a declarative kind of way. 
Okay, we're not talking, therefore, the beautiful literary allusions of the Bible and the word pictures and metaphors and poetry. We're just stating something like, thou shall not kill, straightforward. Okay, these are only some of the scriptures that most directly say why you should read the Old Testament in the New Testament. Remember, whenever, when, any, when Jesus or any of the apostles uh, in the book of Acts and in their you know, letters to the Corinthians or Galatians or whoever say, uh, talk about the scriptures, they're talking about what should be called the Hebrew scriptures, which Christians call the Old Testament scriptures. Now that's a little bit of a misnomer because what we think of as the Old Testament uh, started in Exodus chapter 19, 70 chapters into the, the Old Testament. <laughs> so, um, and there were several covenants before the Mosaic Covenant. But we think, of, when we say the Old Covenant, we're thinking of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, so I, I like the term Hebrew Scriptures better, but in any case. Jesus and the Apostles clearly stated over and over again that they believed in the authority of the Old Testament Scriptures, or the Hebrew Scriptures. They quote them as truth. You hear a lot of Christians today say, I don't really like Deuteronomy and Leviticus very much. Well, then you don't like Jesus very much. There's no escaping the logic of that. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy more than any other book. And I can't say I like John Luke if I'm not interested in hearing what his favorite kinds of music are and if he likes basketball or baseball or whatever, uh, might interest him. So these are just some of the most didactic ways, the easiest ways to begin to get a handle on how important the Old Testament is. But 90% of Christians today know very little about the Old Testament. And you cannot know anything about the New Testament without knowing the Old Testament thoroughly because Every New Testament book, all 27, are written in a way that they're assuming you know the Old Testament. And they're using word pictures, stories, historical narratives, uh, poetry, and so forth from the Old Testament to illustrate the kingdom of God and and the ideas of Jesus Christ. Jesus is always assuming his listeners know their Old Testament. So is Paul. And they allude to the Old Testament approximately nine to ten times per chapter of the New Testament. So to read the New Testament without knowing the Old Testament is to miss the whole message and to get a very skewed, twisted message, which is what we have today. There has never been a time what Isaiah prophesied was more true of the church, even more so than in the time of Christ himself. In the time of Christ himself, Jesus said this time period, the prophecy of Isaiah, that this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me because they teach as their doctrines, their their ideas, their paradigms, the ideas of man. Now that applies to the current situation much more than it did the time of Christ. 
And that's not an over-exaggeration. This is why one of the largest movements in America is the unchurched church. People who believe, I am, they've been told, they, I went forward at an altar call, I've been told over and over again that I'm inter- eternally secure, and I want nothing to do with loving the people of God in my church. They, they don't necessarily even belong to a church, or they attend it twice a month or something like this. So, I'm not trying to be negative. What I'm trying to do is call us up to what God is trying to do here and make sure everyone is a player. You know, I uh, coached inner city baseball teams and I took over a team on purpose that the guy that ran the league asked me to take over because they had only won one game the previous year and they were all the worst players in the league and the kids who had no dads and were overweight and slightly effeminate or whatever. And I said, I'll be glad to take these guys. And we won our league the first year, but we lost the city tournament in the championship game because it was a best of, you know, you had to be double eliminated. And we both uh, teams arrived at the championship with no losses, and they beat us twice in a row. Uh, the next year, we beat that team three years and we, uh, three times, and we never lost again for the next three or four years. But I learned a lot about coaching during those years. And uh, one of the things is, we said, is everybody's going to be an important player. We don't have the important players and the non-important players. No kid was allowed to even have body language to, to uh, say that a ref's call was bad. Or so. I said, you know what, bad calls are part of the game. The refs are doing the best. You're not allowed to complain even with your body language. And if you're the best player on the team and you uh, shrug your shoulders at a call or whatever, you were benched for the rest of the game. I didn't allow the kids to talk to the other team unless they were giving them a compliment. Because, you know, I was, it, I was basically trying to get the ghetto out of ghetto kids. And it was a great, fun thing for four years. But I learned a lot about our current culture. So... Um, What I want to do today is just remind us of a few things the Lord has deposited in our, in our midst and, uh, and challenge us to steward these well. So I'm, I'm basically just saying stewarding our commission. That's the, that's the title of the message, stewarding our commission. So uh, there were some things from the... Let's go back on some slides for the announcements. There were some things I wanted to... Uh, Go to the announcements. That's the worship stuff. Get to about the middle of the announcements. Keep going. Wait. Go back. 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 Okay. Uh, go f- go uh, forward. Uh, well, actually, go back to right state. Um, <laughs> you... You will, we uh, are probably far from the level of Christian community that the New Testament church uh, enjoyed. Today, a lot of Christians have somewhat of a see you on Sunday kind of uh, relationship to their church. And some Christians have a see you on every second or third Sunday. (laughs) 
But in the New Testament, they lived close together. They took their meals together. They went from house to house, praising God, studying the word, witnessing, whatever. They lived in community. None of the epistles make any sense if you don't understand that's how they were living. It's very easy to get along with someone you only see uh, once a week. But when you start to have real depth in a relationship, you will have conflict. And learning to do conflict in a redemptive way is the number one way you learn to grow up. Until you do conflict well, you will always be childish and immature. Look at any person who you're, you know, who just bounces around from church to church and, and bounces around from marriage to marriage or job to job, and uh, they don't do conflict well. And doing conflict well requires that you hear the person speak what you need to hear. And you're humble enough to admit your faults and repent. Love means always having to say you're sorry. Some, some of you know I'm alluding to a movie from the 70s there. So I would encourage you that we have, a, you know, we have a, almost every week we have some kind of prayer meeting or a house Bible study uh, at the Red House Hot, House of Awesome, the Red House House of Prayer, whatever, <laughs> how to pray, whatever it is that Teresa likes to call it. Um, uh, we have the uh, Bible studies on the second and fourth Wednesdays at Andy and Peggy's house. On the first and third, we often have it at the Grays, or uh, sometimes we'll have it on a Monday night instead at, at Amber's house, which is the Red House. And uh, you need more than one fellowship time a week. And you you know what? The people who need to hear this probably won't do it anyway. But find a way to get your lifestyle in more in community. Live closer to the people, whatever it takes. Get more involved in Christian community. And in such a way that you're both a giver and a taker. That, you're, that you get find some accountability and someone to help you be challenged to get out of your mediocrity. If there's, the sin of mediocrity is like the number one plague on Christianity today. We are mediocre about everything. We are the, the classic lukewarm people who Jesus is going to vomit out of his mouth. And that, don't, don't play pitchfork and go, that applies to the Baptist down the street. That applies to us. We're not as passionate about God as, as God wants us to be. God have mercy on us and help us get more zealous for him. And especially in those ways we've avoided. Everyone likes to tell themselves they're zealous. But what are the areas where you're not really taking the yoke that Christ has for you? One of the reasons you need community is you'll never know what those areas are without your brother or sister helping you see them. But we are avoiding many of the crosses and the disciplines and, and the intensity that Christ wants to put in our life. And we are congratulating ourselves that we're much deeper in the Lord than we really are. So I throw that up to say uh, Stephen is uh, an excellent, excellent Bible teacher. And he teaches on Tuesday nights. It comes out of, I know Stephen's lifestyle. He lives in my basement. 
And I know that every time I ask Stephen to do something, which is way too many times because I'm lazy, and I hire Stephen to be my, take care of me, I'm mostly interrupting his study. He's seeking the Lord, reading, studying, reading good books, scripture, listening to podcasts from all sorts of different people out there. All the time. That's his way of life. Move on. Next slide. Uh, the, the woman's prayer meeting, I hear great results. You know, Robbie and I are going to try to figure out a way to get him an invite. But no. <laughs> We're going to sneak him in. It's kind of hard to get in with a beard, you know. Uh, all right, let's, let's move on to... Uh, uh, today is the last of our, the class of the systematic theology. And I do want to exhort us about something. Before we uh, ran this last running of the systematic theology class, this is our fourth running. In the first three, we had had 20 people complete it. Uh, it looks like about six out of the 20 that started are on pace to complete it this time. And frankly, that's somewhat disappointing because we actually don't let people start it unless we feel like they're the kind of person who's grown enough in Christ that they're capable of staying with it and, and finishing it. So there's probably another six or seven that are missing only a study or two that if you got yourself together, you could finish it. And we're, we are going to give you up to about the first week of March, about March 7th, to finish it. Uh, we have decided, you know, Ray is uh, 88 years old and his wife is in failing health a little bit. And he wants to spend more time at home loving his wife and serving her and, and paying her back for all the years that she let him fly all over the country and drive all over the country ministering to people. And uh, so uh, he's not going to teach it again. This is our last time with Ray. And he's not going to continue to be my pastor. So this is kind of a change of season. So Ray is going to come back in April, and we are going to have a very big party to honor Ooh. Ray. And I want to tell you one story about Ray. Ray, uh, there's a lot of great stories about Ray, of course. But, you know, Ray is someone I've known since 1974 and 1975. Uh, I was baptized in the pond that's right out in the backyard of the church he pastored and started. Uh, by the way, greetings from that church. I was there last week. Uh, Rick, Rick Widener and... Uh, several other guys installed new elders at the church, and uh, I went as our representative to be a part of that, our sister church, and uh, some good brothers. So, uh, and I always love going there because, you know, in the spring of 1975, my old man was buried in that pond. And he, it's still, the old man is still decaying at the bottom of the pond somewhere. <laughs> no, uh, no. Um, so, you know, uh, one of the ways, one of the parts of our culture here, and we, have a, we are going to talk a little bit about grace in a minute. We don't, I'm not trying to lay on you just a performance base. You've got to make these changes. So one of the things you have to understand about grace is whatever high standard of Christ you hear, the first thing to do is say, Lord, I'm not that. Hebrews 4, uh, one of my favorite verses, you hear me quote over 
times we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one that's been tempted in all things, yet without sin. So we're to draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. So the first thing I do when it comes to anything, like I should read the word more, is I confess that that's not who I am apart from Christ. You know, like one of the seven deadly sins is called gluttony. As you know, I'm an expert at that. <laughs> but, but not on the right side of the equation. So the first thing is, you, you know, to say, Lord, I grew up in a family that loves food. When we're sad, we eat. When we're happy, we eat. <laughs> when we're lonely, we eat. When there's lots of people over, we eat. That's, you know, we know how to eat. First time my wife ever came for Thanksgiving, she was, she was like blown away. It's like, man, you know, like in her family, you know, you sit down at Thanksgiving dinner and they serve your plate for you. And you get one little piece of meat and you can't have two starches or carbs. So you get, you know, either like dressing or potatoes, but you can't have both on the same plate. And uh, then get a little bit of green beans and that's it. I mean, they, they eat so little, I would always go to Waffle House on my way to her parents' house. <laughs> so I would already be pretty full by the time they served, because I'm like, I ate more than that when I was two, you know? <laughs> and then in my house, you know, she went to my sister's house, and there's literally five or six dishes on every end table of homemade candy she made, Nuts, homemade cookies, they're everywhere. And then there's, we don't just have turkey, we have turkey, pork roast, and ham. And uh, we, we don't just have mashed potatoes, we have, you know, we have sweet potatoes, mashed potatoes, fried potatoes, <laughs> and uh, pota rebaked re stuffed potatoes. And, uh, you know, and I don't know why they make things like peas and green beans. Like, who's going to eat that? But, but they make, they're, they're there. And then there's like, you know, you have to choose from the nine or ten kinds of pies, the three or four kinds of pie you want. <laughs> and and uh, and somehow in the middle of the, of the day, you manage to eat somewhere between one and three hundred butter cookies. Uh, we, would, we would actually make three or four thousand butter cookies for every holiday season. <laughs> We'd give them to the neighbors and everything. So, you know, I, I come from a family that loves to eat. I would encourage you to understand the Bible is your sustenance. If you're going to have a gluttony problem, have it with Scripture. So uh, this is our last theology class. This is our fourth running. And I would really like to see 12 to 14 of the 20 that started it finish. And that still can be done. And I would really encourage you. This is the last time we're going to have Ray teach it. Um, we don't know... Who's going to take it over just yet? And we may skip one year before we start it again uh, because, you know, we've got Andy teaching his Bible survey class and now this 930 class on the creeds. We, but we use lay leadership in our church. I, we don't even really have that terminology. I'm just trying to communicate with the world outside there. If you don't understand this, at the average church you go to be a consumer so you go to Sunday meeting to have a good, like a professional worship team worship for you. And whether or not you can actually hear the congregation singing is actually not, actually in most churches you can't hear the congregation anymore. 
we purposely have, if you notice, you can hear everyone singing, and our people love to worship, and we cultivate that. You've got to be a worshiper. Jesus said in John 4 that uh, the Father seeks such to worship him. You were born to worship. And you're made in the image of God, so if you don't worship God, you'll worship cars or success or your kids or some other thing. But worship will help you start to get liberated from all the things you're enslaved to, such as fears, worries, doubts, whatever, laziness. There are many kinds of slavery that are keeping us from being free to follow God. Every one of us is up against that. That's the nature of salvation and sanctification. He's saving you from your idols. Right? 1 John was uh, one of the last books written in the New Testament, and he writes it. uh, Both Colossians and 1 John were written before full-blown Gnosticism was on the scenes, But the ideas that became Gnosticism really came out of Greco-Roman culture and go back to the times of Plato and so forth. And so a lot of pre-Gnostic ideas were infiltrating the church as there are today. If there's anything that evangelicalism is, it's Gnostic, very Gnostic. The spiritual is good and the material is bad. And so we just have marriage because we can't control ourselves. You know, nonsense. When God created the physical... God always evaluates his creation. And most days he said, what? It's good. After he made food. It was, <laughs> it's good. But after he made a husband and wife naked for, and married for sexuality, then he said, it's very good. <laughs> right? It was only good till then. <laughs> right? And the truth of the matter is, There is nothing in Jesus' teaching or biblical teaching that says the spiritual is more clean, more pure, better than the physical. But that's how we relate to it in modern Christianity. All of it is good, and all of it needs to be brought under the lordship of the incarnate Son of God, who became flesh. The word becoming flesh was the most radical idea that it ever hit humanity. That's why in 1 John, when he starts off by saying what we've seen, what we've handled, what we tasted, what we uh, smelled, what we, you know, concerning the word of life, I added a little bit there, but, you know, he was there physically in our, that was considered a highly immoral statement by the people uh, that were disciples of Plato. They thought of the, the, the body as like this evil prison that man got trapped in. But the body is actually something God wants. That's why we celebrate worship of him with a physical meal. We eat his body and drink his blood. We, we have a meal. And we can taste it and smell it. And that fact, that's why uh, American not, you can know there's Gnosticism and antinomianism if they, ch- if they changed it to grape juice. Because that doesn't come out of the scriptures, that comes out of an approach to life that says the physical is bad. So, 
that's a neo-Gnostic doctrine. The first Christians that ever proposed using grape juice in communion were in the early 4th century, and they were the Gnostics. And they, the church condemned that as a heresy. Most people don't know that in church history. Because part of the current culture is that we're anti-church history. But you can't be anti-church history. Here's why. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So Jesus, from the times of the apostles on, has been involved with his church, directing his church, giving his church guidance. And you know what? He's just as capable of speaking to Athanasius in his prayer closet as you. Probably more so, since he was much more studied in the scriptures. Right? And history will go a long way from over to help you or a long way to help you overcome ideas of modernism that have nothing to do with the Bible. You know, it's a very strong doctrine among the uh, African Americans today that that uh, Christianity is white man's religion. Davion pointed that out to me in some hip hop songs he had me listen to, and uh, he's my guide to hip hop songs. Uh, <laughs> No, so uh, the problem is, is that doesn't stand up to history. None of us would be here today if it wasn't for black guys like Athanasius who saved the church from a, from a cult called Arianism. And if it wasn't for the African guys that were, he was called the black dwarf because he was short. That was uh, a name that some people tried to hurt his feelings with. Uh, m mocking more his being short than his being black, actually. And uh, whether, whether you know it or not, he saved Christianity. And there's a, there was a saying in his day, Athanasius Contramundum, which means Athanasius against the world. Because at times, he was one of uh, the few guys in Western Christianity. Now there was Gregory of Nyssa and St. Basil and so forth in the East. But in the West, he was single-handedly standing up for the doctrines of the Trinity and the incarnation of Christ against... He had to go into exile to save his life five times. So, you need to know that. So, we... Um, you can go to the next slide. All right, so that's enough on the slides. You can get rid of them. So, let me just uh, challenge us with a few things. Um, you have a handout called Scriptures on Jesus' Deity. And you should have a handout called Five Approaches to Bible Study. So, what I want to just briefly cover, that, that is, uh, this is something we taught at uh, the Tuesday Night Bible Study at Wright State about five or six years ago. We did a little series called Search the Scriptures series, which, like all of our series, as I set out, the first time I taught it was at... Uh, the church up here on the hill called Bethel Christian Assembly. I used to teach their Sunday school for them years ago, like 15, 20 years ago. And uh, originally I designed it to be a 26-part series that could be done in half a year. Unfortunately, it grew into 100 and some parts. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> these things get out of control. I don't know how. Um, so uh, this one is called Five Approaches to Bible Study. One of the characteristics of Grace Christian Fellowship is we talk about having a lifestyle of biblical studies in catechism. We are in a crisis, and it's a crisis for biblical knowledge. Most Christians today know proof text. 
In other words, they have ideas about Christianity that, that are rampant out there. And they have a few proof texts to back them up. And that's what they know about the Bible. Um, if you follow you know, our program, we would like, we encourage every one of you to get one of the 20 or so people on the leadership team to mentor you. And one of the things you should be talking about is your approach to Bible study. Make sure you're talking about that with a couple older Christians. And um, in these five approaches, I did this study, just so we know where we're going, to try to convince you to do approach number five and to see the limitations of the first five. So hopefully I can get through this. We're going to be a little late today. Um, you can stole me later. Uh, you know, that's the biggest sin in America today if the pastor talks too long. Um, so, um, most people today know a little bit of, of scriptures, but, but you don't read a book that way. You wouldn't read a John Steinbeck novel by saying, well, I really liked page 27, the third paragraph, and page 92, the second paragraph, and boy, that was some good reading. <laughs> okay, so the Bible is one book written by one author, and so you have to study the whole thing to get any of it. Now, there's a doctrine called the clarity of Scripture. God will be showing you things as you're studying, even before you've read all of the things, but it really will come into more focus and clarity for you when you've been through the New Testament seven to ten times and through the Old Testament five or so times. Then the Bible will start to become clear to you. You'll start to really see it for what it is. So even though on a human level it was written by over 40 authors over 2,000 years on three continents... All of those were inspired by, were directed by, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the author of the Scriptures. And if you study our teachings on the Holy Spirit, the first one called the Ministry of the Holy Spirit, we think today in a very man-centered way, so if we talk about the ministry of Jesus or the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we start with a very man-centered, what did he do for us? But what we should start with is what is his role in the Trinity? What did Jesus do on behalf of the Father and the Spirit? What did the Spirit do, on, and what does He do in representing the Father and the Son? Because the Father and the Son are in heaven. And they do everything that they do by the Holy Spirit. That's why the number one attack uh, against truth and reality is against the current activities of the Holy Spirit. Always. Because in, unless you're experiencing the Holy Spirit in biblical ways, then you have an abstract, theoretical, Greekified God. And orthodox doctrine, that right worship, right teaching, is always to lead to orthopraxy, right practice. And if theology does not become incarnational, then it's actually a deception. In other words, the Word has to become flesh in us. And if we just know abstract ideas, 
that, that aren't translated into how we walk in the power of his resurrection, we got nothing. We got less than nothing. We got a false idea that we have something that we don't have, which is worse than nothing. I hope you unfollowed all that. Because um, that's the reality of it. And that's uh, rampant today. We pick and choose which parts we want to follow and obey. Okay, so uh, let's go through these five. The first one is called a topical approach or a thematic approach. Most churches teach that way. That's what I'm doing today, actually. That's why John teaches at the 1030 meetings in what's called an expository approach where we go through whole books. Because the Bible is written as whole books. Don't just know Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23 and Romans 10.9 and understand who Paul is and who the Romans were and what the time period was like and read the whole book in that context. And be able to say, these are the major themes. If somebody were to say Hosea to you and you can't say, ah, oh, let me think, first of the minor prophets, at least in the modern organization of the Bible, the Jews organized it differently, but first of the minor prophets in our Bibles today, uh, he was told by God to marry a harlot. <laughs> God's scandalous. Uh, <laughs> as a metaphor of how God was thinking about his own people. He was their husband. They were his bride. Oh, you mean the, the bride of Christ idea didn't start in Ephesians 5? No, it started in Genesis 1. And it's a major theme of the whole Bible. And Hosea is written in a, in a time of the king's uh, to tell the people of God that you are being most unfaithful to your husband. And all the problems he addresses in Hosea are very rampant in Christianity today. In fact, when he talks about a spirit of harlotry, some translations a spirit of adultery, I would say that's the same spirit that James is addressing in James 1 when he talks about double-mindedness, this is a little off base, but I, would, I think that if you really study out Ephesians 6, Daniel 9, lots of places, Ezekiel 28, other places, you'll find that there are principalities and powers over geographical cultures. And to understand what we're called to do today, we have to understand the principalities and powers that are over American Christianity and cut a path out of that back to, back to reality. We have to restore the church. And we need to know what the spiritual forces of wickedness uh, are, are all about. And, we're, and I would say that number one spirit over American Christianity is religious confusion. Number two spirit is a spirit of harlotry. Which is a, like, I want to be married, but play around too. And the vast majority of Christians are le leading highly compromised, one foot in and one foot out lives. And what am I struggling with? A one-fit-in, one-foot-out life. That's why we need community. That's why we need study. That's why we need people to confess our sins to. Because I've been living this Christian life trying to have one foot in and one foot out. And Jesus can't stand that, according to Scripture. And he came to set me free from that. He's not, he's not trying to kill me from it. He's trying to save me from it. And I need a whole lot of saving going on. Okay, so topical approach um, 
has uh, some good points. And I wanted to bring out this, uh, this scripture on Jesus' deity. So uh, next week we will have all of these. Uh, we had a little misunderstanding thinking we we're only supposed to have the foundational articles, but we're supposed to have certain teachings back there too. But anyway, we, this is something that Deanna and Stephen and I do regularly. We put together topical studies where we cut and paste scriptures on one topic on the front and back. We have them on sexual immorality, on uh, faith versus unbelief. Uh, I, I forget all the, you know, the ideas we've uh, traced down. But these are all scriptures on the fact that Jesus is God. Because one of the great attacks from ancient times until today is trying to say that Jesus was only a man. All cults try to do that. And it's bad enough when we have a reduced view of who God is, then we, you know, we've got some problems. And so there's an idea I want to challenge you with. Take a cult like Jehovah's Witnesses. They have actually taken the Greek Bible and taken some of the most obvious references to the deity of Christ out of there. So if you get a Jehovah's Witness Bible, it has a lot of the references to the deity of Christ removed. Can you prove from their Bible that Jesus is God to a Jehovah's Witness? It's really pretty easy, actually. And it's not above the average Christian being able to do that. You, as an average Christian, should be able to take a Jehovah's Witness Bible and, and prove to a Jehovah's Witness that Jesus is God. I've done it. It's not that hard. So there's some topical approaches can be helpful, say, if you're struggling with something. I would probably encourage uh, every guy in this church and half the ladies to do a topical study on sexuality. Because our culture is saying all kinds of things about sex that the Bible's not saying. Right? And it preaches, the culture preaches to you every day from all sorts of you know, places, billboards, websites, TV shows, radio, media, medium, the God, you know, the prince of the power of the air. Often these things come through the airwaves. And they have a message. They have political ideas, religious ideas. All of that is associated with the, the, the ideas of sexuality. There's a worldview that comes with pornography, and it's not Christ. Keen sense for the obvious. So uh, most contemporary Bible teachings in churches today are topical, but topical only. So topical can be helpful if you have a particular need to study a particular area. So, for instance, I uh, next week you'll get our four-page one called the Bible on the importance of Bible study, which is about seventy scriptures sorted by 14 themes on why you should know the whole Bible. And the first theme is that you're going to find Jesus in your Bible. That's why. So, you know, you should memorize some of those if you find yourself not reading the Bible enough. Has anyone ever had a problem where they didn't read enough of their scriptures? Right? There's an entire attack on your day every day to keep you out of the scriptures. And you need to do battle with yourself. 
And you need to find the grace of God to win that battle every day. I grew up in a family with six kids, and believe me, no one was going to keep me from getting to the dinner table and getting some before it was gone. <laughs> you learn that with a lot of kids in a family. <laughs> don't let your day get to a place where you don't get enough of God's Word. Fight and win that battle. The problems with thematic approaches is you avoid some major topics. You don't think in terms of the context you can get sidetracked on doctrines of demons or other minor points. And you, it's, it's inevitable that you'll avoid major themes in certain portions. That's one of the reasons we have very few Christians today know much about the Old Testament. So Psalm 119, 128, Therefore I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Psalm 119, 160, The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Secondly is the devotional approach. Most people read that. That's where you read the word in a reflective way and you let it read you back. James compares the word of God to a mirror. And the reason I look in the mirror in the morning is to see how ugly I am. But I'm more ugly than I was when I went to bed because my hair is matted and my face is greasy and... I'm not going to end up being handsome by the end, but I'm going to be look better. <laughs> right? So I'm going the, the the mirror's going to read me and tell me I need to wash my face and I need to shave and I need to wash my hair and so forth. Right. So the devotional approach does that. The, the verses I'm referring to in James are at the bottom of the page. There. Uh, there's other verses on the next page. But the problem is, this leads to an hors d'oeuvre approach, parts are parts mentality. I don't know about you, but I love a great hors d'oeuvre party, especially when you're going to someone well-to-do or classy's house, and they got really good hors d'oeuvres. I'm sort of famous for loving this. One of the, our family hors d'oeuvres is called spinach balls, and I can eat about 30 spinach balls and ruin my dinner. But... Uh, you can't help when you do a devotional approach from taking an hors d'oeuvre approach to the scriptures. So you're missing things you need to be thinking about when you don't read whole books. Read whole books in a scheme to read the whole book. And start with learning to look for major themes. The reason our introductory book of the year is called The Heart of the Old Testament it's a book about nine major themes that you should be looking for in the Old Testament. And helps you understand that these major themes start in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and they travel all the way through the Bible to Revelation 22. Right? And you need... Now, uh, John Gray is always my poster boy for all this. That was the last thing he'd ever... He had, never, he had degrees in Bible, but he'd never been read entire books of the Bible at all. Nor did he even have that idea that that would be a, a good thing to do. You can't just have isolated proof text. Because you'll have a very twisted theology from that. You must know the whole books, the whole Bible, in the context. You know, there's 12 minor prophets. What, when did they prophesy and what, what are they talking about? They're not talking about the end times primarily. 
What do prophets do? Prophets call the people of God back to faithfulness to their covenant father, their covenant husband, to the true God. And they call him back in the basis of his law word. And they warn that obedience leads to certain kinds of presence of God type blessings and disobedience leads to sanctions or chastisements or, di- or punishments, so to speak. And ultimately, you won't live in the land where you're supposed to live, which is all metaphorical to say there's an atmosphere you're called to live in as a Christian. And it's in a community of Christians that's filled with the Holy Spirit, that's being blessed on every front, financially, vocationally, and so forth. None of this prosperity crap, which is a good word to use for it. It's, it's diarrhea. It's ridiculous. It's about a kind of prosperity that starts with having more of God's presence about your life. That's true prosperity. And about having so much that we are in a mission to give it away. You know, a foundational idea, there's, there's, I'm, I'm thinking about writing a thing in some of our most important ideas this year. They're my sabbatical. One of which is that every Christian has three ministries. You have a ministry to God. You have a ministry to the body of Christ, particularly the body you're committed to, but whenever possible to the whole body of Christ. And three, to the lost people outside the body of Christ. And make no mistake, even though a very high percentage, probably 35 to 40% of Bible-believing Christians say, I, can, I, I receive Jesus, but I'm not involved in a church, they are lost. That is a deception of the first order. You cannot truly be a born-again converted Christian and maintain that idea because I can't love Jesus without loving his body. That's what 1 John 3 says. You can't love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen. How much do you love? Think about some of the hardest ones to love in the church. And how well am I doing at loving them? That will help you get some reality to where you're really at with God. I know it's late. That's why I never speak at 1030. (laughs) Uh, So devotional approach can be good at times when you need to reflect, repent, etc. But it leaves you with a parts mentality. And ultimately, that is the huge rampant problem in the church today. Third, character studies. I love character studies. I pray lots of things like, God, help me love what you love and hate what you hate. I pray that every day. I pray every day that God will give me a love for his word. That's my number one prayer every day when I, in the part of my prayer time that I pray for myself. And when I pray for the church, the first thing I pray for is, God, give the people in our church a love for your word. Okay? But one thing I also pray for is, God, teach me your ways. Because half the time, God is doing things in people's lives. And if you don't know the ways of God, you won't understand what he's trying to do. And often you'll be going through what you think is a negative situation or, or this brother's causing me problems. And God's trying to bring great blessing into your life through the cross he's bringing you through them. 
But you need to understand every word of God is tested as silver refined seven times. So if, uh, if there's anything that, I, that has broken my heart in the last 20 years is, is we, this is the fourth church Catherine and I started and, and we've always started mostly with young people and we've gotten older but the people we minister to are always 18 to 22 and so forth and, and uh, you know because we minister at college campuses and purposely because they're the future leaders of the world, right? So... Uh, and I take great joy that Anwar Sawoya teaches my Kingdom of God series in an illegal underground church in Abu Dhabi every Sunday morning. So, because I helped him come to Christ, from he was an atheist when I met him at University of Dayton. And uh, so, you know, um, I forgot what I was talking about here. Character studies, God's ways. How does God take someone from where we're living? Like, I love the story of Gideon. Gideon is such a chicken, blankety-blank, that he's hiding. He's actually trying to do the threshing in the wine press because he's scared of the Philistines and the raiding parties and so forth. So, like, the whole point of threshing is you have to be out in the open where the wind can blow the chaff away, and he's hiding down in a pit because he's chicken. And the first thing the angel says, Oh, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. Now, if you could kind of make these stories come alive a little bit, when you, like, Gideon's probably like, Who's he talking to? <laughs> Listen, there's nobody here but me. You know I'm a wimp, right? <laughs> you know, but he's speaking prophetically to who he's going to become. If you're ever going to be effective in this one-on-one discipleship we have to do, you have to start with God showing you who this person is going to become and treat them that way. Sydney remembers that. from When Sydney first came to the church, I used to spend about six hours a week with Sydney for a couple of years because I believed in who God was making him, not in who he was. So... The ways of God are important to understand. God is sovereign. Nothing happens in your life by accident. God sent Officer Diaz to me that one night <laughs> because he wanted me to quit speeding down Burkhart Road <laughs> and using that I was late for a church meeting as an excuse to speed. <laughs> so Officer Diaz wrote me a wonderful thing called a ticket. <laughs> and I was so thankful. And... Uh, <laughs> being the fine Christian that I'm supposed to be. So, uh, God is, nothing happens in your life by accident. You hear Christians whine and complain and about every situation in their life, from their bosses to their circumstances and so forth. God puts you in the circumstances you are in to help you grow. And he blesses you or afflicts you with roommates, family members, uh, bosses, uh, people where you work according to your need. That jerk that you work with is because God loves you. He sent you that jerk. And if you play back the tape correctly, it's probably because of prayers you prayed. Oh, like I I learned as a young Christian, I never pray for patience because... If you pray for patience, God will send you situations that are hard to be patient in, right? 
So I, I don't pray for anything like that anymore. I, 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 just, I just pray for grace to recognize what he's doing and to be thankful and, and, and quit whining and complaining so much. Quit dying like for like those scenes in a movie, like I, you know, like we God is trying to kill us, and we drag out the death scene for like weeks, and we tell everybody in our life, "Oh, this is so hard. I'm having to move forward, and I, I want to stay where I am." Yeah. Fourthly, the exegetical approach or expository approach, which is what John does, you. You know, you need to learn how to read whole books of the Bible and use some tools like looking up the Greek. It's not that hard to learn. And we have people who will teach you. Sydney came once at my request at Rock Campus Fellowship and gave a teaching during the Search the Scripture series the first time we, on, on various Bible study tools online that you can use. And um, You need to learn how to do that. It's, it's a piece of cake. These days, I remember there was a time where I, uh, you ever been double-minded? None of you have. So, you know, there was a time when I donated around 3,000 of my books to a Christian school. And then later I kind of regretted it. <laughs> but, the, you know, 10 years later, I didn't regret it at all because all of those books are, are uh, pretty much free on the internet nowadays. Right? I remember one of the, I gave this series called the Antinician and the Nicene and the Post-Nicene Fathers in wonderful hardback volumes, brand new. I bought, because uh, I had bought out a, uh, a Bible school that went out of business, I bought their library. And so I ended up donating it to this Christian school, and I was like bummed out for a number of years, thinking, oh, I wish I'd have kept that one. And then, you know, just about a year ago, I bought it for $2.99 on, <laughs> on Kindle, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> And it's much more searchable, and it doesn't take up any shelf space, which my wife is very happy about. Because, you know, if you love books, you end up with books everywhere. You can cram them. I'm trying to get uh, John and Jason to take some of my library because I'm out of space for books. And that's why I just buy electronic books anymore. Lastly is the systematic and comprehensive approach. What I'm really trying to help you understand is that all of the other approaches have some limitations. You should use them. There are times when you should read the Word of God devotionally and interact with God and wrestle with Him and let Him convict you and, ask, and repent and ask for grace. You know, you should be having encounters with God in the Scripture. Don't read the Bible in some abstract way where you're not wrestling with Jesus as you're reading but to really start to understand the Bible, you need to understand, you should be able to say, okay, the Apostle John wrote what's called the Johannine literature. He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Now, what are the bigger word pictures that John uses over and over again? What are some of the major themes like light and life that he constantly goes back to? Do you understand what he means by using the word the logos as, a, as a, compared to what Plato meant and what Philo meant? Uh, we did two teachings on that in our Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. So then from there, can you know, have you ever taken time to look at the 40 or so I am sayings of Jesus from the Gospel of John? 
because he's purposely quoting Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. And a lot of times you'll hear people say there are seven of them or so forth, but as we demonstrated, there's around 40 of them in the Gospel of John. And none of them are unique to the New Testament. So when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you have to go back and study the use of the, the concept vine and the husbandmen and, and tending the vine and the vineyard all the way from Genesis forward to understand what Jesus is trying to say. And contrast when Jesus says, I'm the great shepherd, go back and see what Ezekiel and Jeremiah had to say about the shepherds of Israel at times. They were in a lot, a lot of trouble sometimes. And, it, and what they said to the shepherds in Ezekiel and Jeremiah have a lot to do with the shepherds of today. A lot. There's a lot of overlap between what God was upset with the shepherds about and so forth. The average Christian today, when they read Isaiah 55 and they read, my ways are not your ways, they think that's like a formula that's supposed to be. Like, yeah, our ways aren't God's ways. You know, he's so past finding out, we'll never know. That's not what that verse is saying. God is rebuking Israel because he's saying, you're my people. I've given you my word, and the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart, and you're supposed to know my ways. And your ways are supposed to be my ways, and you're still at a place where your ways aren't my ways. You still have your own ways. That's what that verse means. Now, some of what I wanted to cover today was the, the one slide about Andy's uh, I should probably talk about the Victory Project. If you get a chance, the Victory Project's a parachurch ministry that ministers to inner-city kids, mostly African-American kids, but not exclusively. Uh, Monty Bush is the, is the guy who runs it, and he's a wonderful Christian guy. And if, if you know, as we do our Kids Rock House inner-city kind of ideas, and we're trying to revamp those next year and, and put someone full-time on that idea, those, those guys are a, a group that really does it well. So if you get a chance to go to that. But moving on to wherever it talks about Andy's class. Uh, um, yeah, so last year's book of the year was called God's Big Picture. And God's Big Picture, let, get, get me a copy of that, would you, real quick? Is a, um, we have had a number of books like Peter Lighthart's A House for My Name, which John and Emily met with John and Leah Gray for two years to bring them through studying the Old Testament and learning how to study the whole Old Testament and, and learning ways of getting more out of it. And John and Leah Gray, it revolutionized their life, though, though, that discipleship time with John and Emily. And that's uh, partly why we're raising up John Gray as an elder now. I mean, he really caught on to this. And it's about like how to read the whole Bible and get the major themes of like God's fatherhood and God's building a people for his own possession and God's kingdom and covenant and all these kind of major themes that you have to get the major themes first before you start. Fill. What most Christians are doing is trying to fill in that they have a teaching about prayer and a teaching about uh, church and a teaching about eschatology or whatever, and they're all disjointed in their mind. And it, it causes the, it's, it, it, I actually go, sometimes I leave meetings with people the first or second time I meet with them, and I literally go home and cry. I do, all the time. 
And I say, Lord, how did things get this way? There are people who love the Lord. Uh, you know, Catherine and I had dinner with a couple not too long ago. Th 30 years in Christ, and they didn't know the things you should learn the first year in Christ. That is very common today. You know, uh, as you know, I've considered off and on getting a master's, the second master's degree from at Cedarville. But honestly, like the, what you're required to study for a Bible major there is not enough to be what you should be getting. Every Christian should have a deeper foundation in the scriptures than that in the first, second, or third year of being a Christian. And that's why we talk all the time about a culture of biblical studies and catechism. Most people don't even know the Greek word katechion and how the early church practiced it and why and what, what they are. And that all leads to, uh, you know, Andy is teaching a class because this was the simplest book we could find. Unfortunately, a lot of the best books on how to read the whole Bible, um, like... Uh, James Jordan's uh, Through New Eyes and Peter Lightheart's A House for My Name require a reading level that's probably a little bit post-college, you might say, or at least a college reading level of what maybe used to be considered a college reading level. And there's a lot of people today who probably would have a difficulty reading those kind of books. This book, if you went to public school, if you never became that great a reader, if your vocabulary is a little bit limited, if you got through 7th or 8th grade, you can read this book. And it's a very simple introduction to how to quit reading the Bible as parts and therefore missing the whole message. I often meet Christians who really love God who are 10, 15 years into this and don't know what they should have been discipled in the first months of their walk. And that's everywhere you go today. And many times these, these people really do love the Lord. They just never had anyone love them enough to one-on-one -on -one teach them how to encounter the whole scriptures. But Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. That's a lifestyle word. Abide uh, is, is the Greek word meno. It means to remain in, dwell in. That's where we live. What's your address? In somewhere in the middle of the Bible. It's a way of life word. And he says, if you abide in my word, if, it's, if you've developed a way of life around the taking in of my word and, the, and developing more clarity and depth and learning how to live it in community, then you're truly my disciple. Which means if you're not doing that, you're a false disciple. That's what it means. That's what wor words mean, things. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I meet Christians that are struggling with fears, and they're five, ten years into this thing. Now, no one's upset at you that you're struggling with doubts and fears or whatever, but there's a better place to live. And you can get to that better place the first one or two years of walking with the Lord, if you want, if, and that's what he's actually trying to do for you. He's trying to, you know, like there's a spirit of religious confusion and there's a spirit that kind of uh, is about being one foot in and one foot out. And then there's a spirit about like the, inter the eternal childhood 
where believers stay spiritual children, read, study for yourself the whole book of 1 Corinthians and then the book of Ephesians and start there and then work out from there to the rest of the Bible and study the idea of what it means to be a spiritual child versus what it means to be a spiritual adult. And understand that uh, it's, I, I love our grandchildren and I'm not upset with little Susan that she acts like a two-year-old because she is a two-year-old. But if my kids were acting as two-year-olds when they're in high school, then I would be a little concerned. You know, are, they, are you growing up in age-appropriate ways? And to be uh, bogged down with all kinds of fears and unbeliefs or, or addictions or any number of things, that's supposed to go out of your life early on in your walk with God. And like, you know, worry, fear, gossip, these have become the acceptable sins that, uh, that it's okay that we have like 30% of the people are, are bound up by these things. It's not. Perfect love cast out all fears. I know I'm way past my time. This is why I, I don't speak very often at 1030. But... I, I hope this is helping you. I, I, yeah, this is a strong message. I'm being very strong on purpose. One of my greatest memories was in graduate school. I was going to bed one night, and there was a banging noise in the closet, and I had a momentary feeling of fright. And then I began to cry and worship because I realized before I was a Christian, I had a lot of fear in my life, a lot I laid in bed at night as a kid hiding under the blankets because I was so convinced the shadows in the hallway were, were going to come in and shoot me in the middle of the night. And so my life was terrified by lots of fears. And at that moment, I realized that I hadn't had a fear like that float through my heart or mind in many years. And I was a Christian about five years at that time. And I, was, I just began to cry and thank God and worship him because I didn't set out to overcome those fears. What happens is perfect love casts out all fears. As you mature in Christ, that is one barometer God's given you to help you know where you're really at. That's what the Sermon on the Mount, he takes Matthew 6, 19 through 34, a big chunk right in the middle. He talks about worry and anxiety because worry is God's gift to you. If you're worrying... You're not founded properly in Christ. So instead of, don't get condemned or beat yourself up about it. Confess to God, I'm worrying. Take me to a place where I'm not worrying. And get some older Christians involved in that. Because worrying is not what God's provision for you is. Actually, there's nothing to worry about. <laughs> really, there isn't. And, and, on, and again, there's going to be no help being down on yourself or upset, nor will we be down on you if you struggle with worry. But worry is a gift to help you know you're not properly relating to God. It's a wonderful thing. If you have anxiety or worry in your life, that's God trying to, to give you something so that you can recognize is saying, I'm not approaching God's relationship with God correctly. 
And God wants to set you free from your fears and your worries. And that should be happening early in your Christian life. Um, so forth. Last point, because I'm uh, 45 minutes or so. Well, I guess 35 minutes behind. Um, you can all take me out to the parking lot and stole me to death. Just don't scratch anyone's cars. <laughs> um, this is a book called The Creedal Imperative, and this, the series Andy started this morning at 9.30 is based on this book, and this is what we're calling our intermediate book of the year. Uh, there's a lot of talk you'll hear today. We have no creed but the Bible. That's a very, Frank, this book will help you understand why that's a completely ignorant statement and shouldn't be said because every group has creeds in their mind or heart, whether they're out in the open or not. And when you kind of say, well, we have no creed but the Bible, what you're actually kind of saying is, well, we believe whatever the pastor's believing this week. You know, creedal statements and confessions and, and catechisms should all be out there so you understand what the major ideas of the faith. And just so you understand this, 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, Paul says that there must be heresies among you. The King James says heresies. Modern translations usually say factions, divisions, or sects. But the Greek word is heresis, which we get heresies from. And there must be these in the church in order that the way of the truth can become more manifest. And like what we said about worry, God allows false teachings to begin to rise in the church whenever the church needs a wake-up call that they're not well-founded in the right things. So through a process called the ecumenical councils, in the uh, the first seven ecumenical councils in about... the mostly in the first four centuries, but on into the 5th, 6th, and 7th century, the church actually wiped out a number of cultic ideas called Arianism, Docetism, Gnosticism, etc. And for the most part, the church for centuries dealt with very few sects that were, that were a pseudo-Christian cult like Jehovah's Witnesses are or something like that or Mormons or some other kind of false uh, when I say pseudo-Christian, they, on the surface they say they're Christian, but they're missing the main ideas of Christianity. They're not Christian at all. And Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, 8 John 8, you will, verse 54, you'll die in your sins. It's, it's important. You know, the, the question always is, who do you say that Jesus is? Okay, so the, the, the early creeds, including the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the symbol of Chalcedon, all rose to define the Trinity and the, and the uh, incarnation and, and who Christ was, the second member of the Trinity and so forth, in order so that we would know where the boundaries are. And they did it so well that they drove the false competing cults completely out of existence for some centuries. Then in the 19th century, during the what was called the modernist versus fundamentalist controversy, and really, in the 1830s, uh, ideas such as pietism and so forth began this process. But these ideas began to emerge that uh, said, well, we don't want liturgy, and we don't want pre-written creeds and so forth, so we can be more open to the move of the Spirit. <laughs> right? And so all of that led to uh, 
you know, getting rid of some ancient things like scripture reading cycles and reciting creeds as part of the worship and so forth. Okay? That exactly coincides with the, the beginning of the modern cults starting to rise. If you study the Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, the Way International, uh, I don't know, what, give me some more cults that I'm missing out on. Christian Science, thank you. The Freemasons, which is actually more than a cult, it's a completely false religion. And you know that uh, the majority of Southern Baptist pastors are Freemasons. And that's actually not even a Christian religion. Most Christian denominations have rules against being Freemasons. So the, when, when, we, when the church began to leave that, all these modern cults were birthed, and they have begun to grow and spread and so forth. And we're doing, what's happening is the church has to do the same work it did already. And there's a reason why you, uh, creeds and creedal statements and catechisms and all that is important. And we've asked Andy to spend the rest of the year. He's going to be teaching on this every 930 uh, for the rest of the year. I know we've kind of got to a place where about 70% of our members come at 930. Um, I just want to throw out, you know, Jesus said, could you not watch with me one brief hour? The reason we do this 930 thing is we, we are in a desperate need as a culture for better and more Bible teaching. And one of the things that is part of human nature is to uh, take for granted what God has given you, right? Every, if you have kids, you know that already. <laughs> if you were a kid, you know, right? You're brought up in a rich, we're, we're the wealthiest culture in the history of the world, and we take a lot of things for granted, and we're spoiled, and not very tough on the inside sometimes, and a lot of things. So that's just human nature to, to drift there. But I want to tell, tell you that we have five of the best Bible teachers in the Dayton area in one church by the grace of God. John Weiss is the best Bible teacher I know. I listen to him over all the famous guys on the Internet. And he has taught me so much about the Lord in the last 15 years that I never thought I could learn that much about the Lord from one guy again. It's, it's reminiscent of the 70s for me. You know, Andy is fantastic. My wife is so excited about going to Andy's class and listening to Andy. It's unbelievable. And she studies all week for it. I always see her going... You know, trying to find a quiet place in the corner of the house with God's big picture to get ready for Andy's class. And my wife knows the Bible better than 90% of pastors easily. She knows it better than me. I mean, we, Stephen Leopold's insights are amazing. Really good. And I would just encourage you that, you know... We can't just have like a teaching meeting on Monday night and then one on Tuesday night. <laughs> so we try to get two for one special on Sunday mornings. Um, I would encourage you to, uh, to get both messages. All it requires is thinking ahead of time about what you're going to do with your Saturday night and getting the clothes laid out and getting to bed a little earlier and, and, and telling yourself that it starts at 9 instead of telling yourself it starts at 9.30 so you get here as early as Jennifer Pett. She's, I've never, never arrived anywhere where Jennifer's not there already. 
And, uh, um, you know, get some coffee and, and get two for... You, you have, between John Weiss and Andy Gerhardt, you would have to travel about 500 miles to find two Bible teachers that good in the same building. You would. But we have, like, well, we can get this any time. Get it hot off the press, so to speak. I, I really want to encourage us. Don't let yourself not be here at 9.30 for this new series Andy's doing. When, when John called me this morning, I almost said, well, let's have Andy do 10.30, because that makes me quit at a certain time. <laughs> you wish I'd have done that now. Um, and secondly... Um, then you'd hear how good the stuff he's doing is. But um, it really gets down to, you know, maybe watching a little less TV. On, I know that's like worship time to watch silly shows on Saturday nights. or You know, it might require a little bit of commitment to Christ. But if you really kind of compare the level of commitment that many Christian movements have had, it's not asking very much. It really isn't. And... Uh, let, let's get a very high turnout at 9.30. Because that's the, Paul tells us to be of one spirit, one mind, working together for the faith of the gospel. That's how we all get on the same page. And if you haven't caught on, what we're trying to do here is something very sacred. I have pastors who want, who've listened to our podcast come to me all the time and say, wow, what you're trying to do there in Dayton is very special. I hope God will protect this and you guys can pull this off. This is not the direction that 97% of churches are going in America today. We are not the mega church. We are not the seeker-sensitive church. We are not the leave-you-shallow church. We are going to get in your grill and keep you a long time and, and, uh, and call you to Christian maturity in ways that your flesh does not want to go. But on the other side of death is where the life is. And yeah, we're going to call you to the cross in ways that you've been avoiding for many years. But on the other side of that cross is, is what Jesus died to give you. And we want you not to just have it in theory. What, to be honest, I want to get to the place where I can just go on sabbatical all the time because every one of you is so healthy in the things of God that we could, you know, just pick a random person out of the audience and say, you speak today. We, we, this maturity thing is not for a few leaders. It's what we're all called. If you, we are calling you to go deep enough in your character and your experience with God and your knowledge that you can know how to make disciples and walk them all the way through to Christian maturity in a few years' time because you know how to take them there. And you can't take some people you can't take people places you've never gone. 